Bill is a failed skydiver and a bear sometimes he runs. Ben's always traveling, an occasional beach bum. Phil talks a lot, Ben not at all. It's BHP Town Hall. Random guests, alcohol, BHP Town Hall. Ben created Eye on Off, he's a comic book fanatic. Phil made Pyro CMS, he's probably in a kayak. Phil talks a lot, Ben not at all. It's BHP. Hey, uh, welcome to the PHP Town Hall. This is episode 58. I'm joined by the amazing Amanda Folsom tonight as my co-host, along with uh, three guests. We have Chris Bowden, Daniel Cousineau, and Michael Wells. We are, we're here to discuss startup life. Uh, we're going to walk through a bunch of concepts, a bunch of the uh, experience we all have from working at startups and from not. Uh, hopefully, it's entertaining. So we'll start off with Amanda. I have no idea where in the world you are. What's going on with you? So for once, I'm actually in Denver for a whole three days, and this is sandwiched between uh, a two-week trip to, uh, it was Johannesburg, Amsterdam, Dublin, and Edinburgh, and then uh, I've got Sydney later this week. So it's a rare moment for me to actually be in Denver for once. (laughs) Nice. Did you ever get your bags? I did. Uh, there's been a lot of drama with that. I'm pretty sure that suitcase is cursed, um, and I never want to take it on another trip again because it's gotten lost the last like four trips I've taken it on. But uh, yeah, oh. all is well for now. All right. Did it show up? Like, did it show up in South Africa eventually, or did it just go to your next destination? Yeah, um, it showed up for the last two days of the trip, and then uh, when I got to Edinburgh, I just told them to hold on to it, and I would collect the bag um, in two. Days when I was flying back to the U.S., I didn't even grab it in Edinburgh. I just left it there. <laughs> it was not even worth the drama. Nice. All right, uh, let's start out with uh, Chris Bowden. Who are you? What do you do? Why are you here? Hi, all. Uh, I'm Chris. I live in Canada. Eh. I uh, I've been a software engineer for about ten years and spent about uh, five of them in a couple startups. Uh, why am I here? Ben invited me. Thanks, Ben. Good answer. You might get back. <laughs> Next up, Daniel Kuzno. What do you do? Me? Hi. Um, my name is Daniel Kuzno. What am I doing? Um, I have no idea. I'm on a podcast. I'm sitting in my room that I haven't left in a while. Um, I've been a developer for well over a decade now. Uh, been working at startups or small companies for most of my career. Um, currently helping found a startup called Alto, um, and having fun doing it. Uh, and then why am I here? Because I'm a sucker and I respond to your DMs on Twitter. I don't know why I do that. There seems to be a pattern. Michael Wells. The struggle is real. (laughs) So, uh, my name is Mike Wells. I am the vice president of engineering at Moonrise. Uh, Moonrise is a new startup based out of Chicago where we're trying to apply machine learning and artificial intelligence to America's underemployment problem. Um, about 60% of Americans, if they were presented with a $400 emergency expense, they have no idea how they would you know, surmount that obstacle. And so what we do is we built a platform that matches up this you know, dependable, reliable workforce 
um, with uh, local and nationally recognized brands that just need you know some extra hourly labor um, done. Prior to Moonrise, I was the director of content development at Udacity, um, which is an online education company founded by Sebastian Thrun, who also founded Google X. I was on the team that developed the first nanodegree program, which was a pivotal shift for that company, um, and also led to its $1 billion valuation. And prior to my startup life, um, I spent about 15 years uh, between you know, freelancing, I was enlisted in the Air Force for a while, um, and I uh, worked on some government contracts with three-letter intelligence and defense agencies that you know very well. Um, and why I'm here is just like everyone else, I, I have a compulsory tendency to reply to Ben's DMs. All right. At least I know I have this power now. Like, I feel like I don't use this enough. <laughs> All right. Uh, well, how do we want to start this off? Okay, let's uh, let's talk through a little bit on everyone's experience, and we can just kind of jump in here and there. So um, I'm just going to take this in the order of what I see on my screen. Uh, Amanda, so what's been like your experience as far as like big corp, startup, etc.? Yeah, so I've really been all over the place. I did my share of government contracting. I did a lot of freelance work for a while, and then worked at a company that was completely bootstrapped, took no outside investment, uh, was managed relatively startup-y, um, but wasn't really like a startup in the traditional sense. And then uh, worked at a company called PagerDuty for a while, uh, which was very startup-y and like a traditional Silicon Valley type startup, uh, and then went from there to GitLab. And then GitLab was pretty similar as far as the, the Silicon Valley startup um, where they were different was they were completely remote. So everybody in the company was remote. You didn't have to live in the Bay area like you did with page duty. Uh, so that was an interesting shift. And then now uh, I work at Nexmo, which was acquired by Vonage. So the Nexmo side is still run sort of startup E, but Vonage has come in and has made it more corporate America. So we have like it policies and, and things, um, that we previously didn't have at the startup. So uh, it's sort of a hybrid right now. Nice. Yeah, that's going to be an interesting transition. Have you ever been through a transition like that before? Not quite like this. Um, it is interesting to see how a larger corporation handles things like this, especially after an acquisition. Uh, so uh, it hasn't been as disruptive as I thought it would be. There were some problems with uh, like the infrastructure management and the corporate IT policies and bringing everybody into compliance. And now we have mandatory fund trainings about not harassing people and things like that. Um, those have been the largest changes. But for the most part, I think we got off pretty easy. As far as acquisitions go, they just sort of said, hey, we really like what you're doing. Um, here's a lot of money to keep doing it. <laughs> well, not bad. Yeah, yeah, we got off really easy. So I am yeah. very grateful <laughs> for them for not clobbering us yet. <laughs> cool. All right, uh, Chris, what is your experience? Uh, I started off my career in a really young company, really small, that uh, did big work. Uh, they were they weren't a startup, but they kind of, kind of looking back, it kind of felt like it. Uh, really small company that we did really big work for Canada's national banks. Uh, including like replacing one of their mainframes. Uh, from there, I took a, um, uh, went to an ad agency and did a lot of um, 
you know, front end stuff. Um, and then after that, I went to my first actual startup, uh, developing native apps, um, for enterprise customers. Uh, after that, then I went to work for Ben for a little bit and small, uh, small established company, but I don't know how you could describe how better, what it was like or what kind of company it is. Um, and then yeah, I left. Uh, we're kind of like a mix of established and then startup-y, right? So we kind of, we have an established side and then we spin off uh, startups fairly often to try new things. Yeah. Yeah, it, was, it felt like a small company doing big things, but it felt, being in it, it felt established. Like everything was seemed pretty well-defined and um, no, nothing was ever on fire. And now uh, I'm at a startup again, and um, we're tra- kind of transitioning to be m- a little bit more established. Um, but that's been the everything's on fire all the time kind of attitude mentality. Nice. All right, uh, Daniel. Yeah, so um, I've had a little bit of a mix in my experience, um, but for the most part, it's usually been startups. So. Uh, while I was in college, I worked uh, way too many hours at like a local web design firm. So like the, you know, small group of people doing websites for random Joe's, uh, you know, real estate company and whatnot. Um, and then I worked for the university after that. So, you know, go from tiny to absolutely massive. And I went to Texas A&M. So that's a very big school. And then after there, I left to go to my first real startup Um uh, which is a great experience until uh, my boss pulled me aside one day and he says, Hey, um, some contracts didn't come through and funding didn't come through. And I haven't been taking a paycheck for two months and your coworker just found a job. We have enough money to pay you for the month. Uh, come in, turn the lights on, leave, turn the lights off and uh, spend your time interviewing to find a new job. You're the last employee here. Um, after that, I kind of jumped in and I started doing some, uh, agency, like working at some agencies, both large and small. Um, and then worked at a, spent about two years at a development agency in, uh, uh, New York that went from about nine to 20 people. Uh, and then I worked at a proper, I guess you'd say proper, like series C and all of that startup, um, uh, in New York called Grovo, uh, had fun with that left, um, Spent about two and a half months at another place uh, that shall not be named. And then kind of left and trying to figure out what I wanted to do. And uh, the co-founder of Grovo, where I was previously at, was like, hey, I'm starting a new thing. And I'd love some help founding it. So me and a couple of other friends went. And now we're kind of helping found uh, Alto doing uh, real estate uh, stuff. If any of you want to buy a house in Marin County, I can help you with that right now. Otherwise, it's a fun startup that I'm enjoying. <laughs> Are you only in Marin? Right now, we're only in Marin. We're doing uh, off-market real estate. So focusing in Marin, trying to get our product basics down, get our product market fit down before we expand into the Bay Area, then California, because real estate is going to require a lot of money to grow because we basically... By the time we are nationwide, we will need about one lawyer per state <laughs> in order to handle yeah. the individual states' yeah. real yeah. estate regulations, and that's not cheap. Right. Uh, so, Mike Wells, you covered a lot of this in your intro. Do you want to cover anything else you missed? Oh no, I, ju- I just feel um, 
Daniel's pain a little bit there since we're in the employment market and yeah, every, every new state we want to enter, um, there's a whole new series of laws. So I definitely understand your, your pain there, but yeah. So how bad is it for you all since you're, you're doing all like 299 people, right? No. So that's actually one of the big differentiators we have. Um, we are not 1099 people. Um, every employee, uh, every Moonriser is what we call them. Uh, they are W2 part-time employees of Moonrise. Interesting. Does that cause any people problems with moonlighting? Uh, you know, like if they have a day job that has an issue with that? No. So actually we're designed for people like our, our target demographic, the people we're focused on are, um, people that have, you know, some other sort of commitment. Um, they might have a full-time job already. Maybe they're, um, you know, raising their kids or they're taking care of their parents. And it's really the demographic that like they're reliable, they're hardworking. They just need 20 more bucks this week to pay their car note. Um, and so we found that, um, you know, by bringing them on as, you know, legitimate employees of our company, um, a, that kind of, um, protects us against this gray area that exists within the gig economy, um, but also um, gives them um, a feeling of like being part of the team. You know, they're invited to the Christmas party. They're invited to the company picnic. Uh, you know, all those, all those sorts of things. Uh, we want them to feel like they're part of the team and not just um, a, a cog in the machine. Um, we are, we are 100% like worker focused because our goal is to, as a company, our goal is to um, improve these people's lives, not get clients work. Of course, we have to, you know, we need clients to, to, to accomplish that goal. But the goal is to give that person another 40 bucks this week. Nice. Okay. Uh, so to mine real quick, I... Basically started out at a big corporation, like one of the largest privately held uh, companies in the world. It was automotive manufacturer. And then moved from there to agency life. Uh, and then from there to kind of startup life. That startup eventually got, you know, a little bit bigger, very stable. It's been around for a while. Uh, jumped around a little bit, did the agent or the uh, three-letter agency stuff with Mike there uh, and then came back to the kind of startup I'm at now where it's um, it's an established company. It's been around a while. We are small and we uh, we spin off kind of startup decks and companies pretty often. It's got a little mix of both, which is both exciting and very challenging. So, uh, yeah, so I guess uh, let's just jump in with a free-for-all. Whoever wants to answer it can go for it. Let's do, I'm looking at our notes here. I'm going to move up uh, the taxes a little later in the conversation. I definitely want to cover that. But let's go ahead and jump into uh, the pros and cons of startup versus big business. And then we can transition that into uh, do you find your own startup or do you work for another startup? Who has thoughts? Um, yeah, I guess I can jump in since I, I guess, recently made that transition. Um, so, Having come from the startup mentality and moving more towards a traditional corporate environment, um, I think the changes have been, I guess it's neutral. 
Um, so you exchange some freedoms for some stability, I think. Uh, so I'm less concerned about collecting my paycheck and the startup or the company going under. Um, but I do have to jump through more hoops to do things. So like previously, I had a lot of freedom to book my own travel and stay where I wanted to stay and keep my trips as long as I or short as I wanted them. And now there's policies for all of that. So we have a lot of policies. But we also have things like trainings that we have to do. Um, and the company is pretty invested in training the employees to do things, not just like fun HR anti-harassment trainings, but also legitimately like we want you to be better as an employee and better as a person and maybe all these opportunities to cross train and, and do things like that. Um, but yeah, I do miss some of the freedom sometimes, but I, I'm actually really enjoying the stability uh, that the corporate side of the business brought to the startup side of the business, because there's a lot of things that I just don't have to worry about anymore. Yeah, so I've kind of gone the the opposite direction of Amanda. Um, I've gone from, you know, very, very large. I mean, the Air Force is half a million people um, to General Dynamics, which is about 100,000 people, um, to a, a smaller government contractor that was about 30,000 people, um, to when I went to Udacity. Udacity is now about, you know, 500, 600 people across seven, you know, seven countries. But when I was there, I was employee number 32. Um, and then to my, my current place where um, we're about 17 people and I'm technically employee number one. Um, and I personally, I just find like the, the smaller company, the startup mentality. Um, I enjoy it much more. Um, the, the culture of, um, you know, experimentation, um, you know, failing quickly and learning from those failures, um, asking for forgiveness rather than permission. Um, and then I'm, I'm a, whether it's a good thing for me personally or not, I'm a workaholic. And so um, I, I find that like the startup life is, um, I, you know, I, I can take on more and more responsibility. I've actually quit jobs. Um, the, the position you know, where Ben and I were working together for a while, I actually left that company because they wouldn't let me do more things. And that's not a problem in a startup. And so I, I enjoy all those things. Um, I find the, the career progression and just the ability to learn and, and do more things to just be way more apparent and not mired by all that policy that Amanda described. Um, you can really, you know, go from, independent contributor to, you know, managing a large team. And if you're, if you're ready for that ride and you're willing to grow along with it, it can be an amazing opportunity. I have uh, a similar set of experiences to you, Michael. Um, a lot of like, you know, pros and cons, it's been nice working at the larger companies. Um, benefits are great. The paycheck coming in on time is great. Not being told that there's no more company is great. Um, they're all fantastic. And I've also found that like you, you also get to work. It depends on the kind of, you know, startups that you're at. If you're, when you're at a larger company, you get to work on larger problems. Well, I say larger problems, higher scale, but you work on a smaller piece of it. Whereas when I'm at a startup, the uh, the benefits that I found from there is while there's increased risk, the pay is not as good, 
what I have found is, is this control over what I do. So I can take on more work or take on less work, or I can work in a different area and I can have a little bit more control over my, what I learn towards my career progression. I've sometimes said before, I, I feel like I may be like five or six years ahead of where I would be in my career had I stayed at a much larger company or a company that wasn't growing. It was just already grown. Um, I've had more opportunity to go in and just like at, at a startup, you know, uh, oh, there's a bunch of people and they're all stepping on each other's toes, step up and take control of the team. Don't wait two years for your promotion to a manager title. Just literally grab the team by the back of their collars and say, we're doing this now. And congratulations, you're a manager. Um, and that's kind of been really helpful. I'm, I'm like you, like, hey, listen, this thing over here is broken and I need to work on it. The only thing I need to hear from the upper levels of the company is that it's not a waste of time or money for me to fix that. That's all I ever want to hear. And then I want to go and fix it. I don't want to hear uh, you can't fix that because that's not your area. You're you technically that's not your domain of responsibility. We need it fixed. Nobody will fix it, but you're not allowed to fix it because you're not on that team. So. Yeah, the way, I, the way I describe this loosely is in a large company, if your paycheck's messed up, you call into a 1-800 number and you say, I'm employee number 37895624747. And you talk to a customer service agent, just like if you were calling your insurance company. Whereas in a startup, if my paycheck's messed up, I walk down the hall and I'm like, hey, George, you control my paycheck. What's going on? And I like that, um, that culture and that experience much more. The one downside to that is, is um, often I've rarely had an experience where I worked at a small company where somebody truly qualified as managing that. Usually it's an office manager, which is fine. They have too much to do. And uh, my first year in New York, I got punched really hard with state taxes because I remember double checking my paychecks and going, huh. I know that they bumped my pay up when I moved from Texas to New York, but I didn't realize they bumped my pay up that much. Nope. That was three to four months of New York state and city taxes. They forgot to pay for me. And whew, oh. that was, that was uh, not fun. Yeah. There's definitely um, kind of got to double check things yourself um, for a long time at a previous company. Um, our, our HR department was literally like a stuffed monkey. And it was like, here, talk to the HR monkey. Um, and, and you just got to be comfortable with, um, with that, I guess, owning your own experience. Yeah. You have to be a mini expert in tax law, uh, regardless, like is when your startups under say 150 people, it's good to have a basic understanding of accounting and tax law. Yeah. I also got, yeah, even more so that too is like HR, right? If you have an HR issue, you have to be a little more comfortable with ways to resolve it yourself rather than being used to, you know, having some type of advocate in the company. I, uh, my company's going through the transition now where I, I, we're safely getting out of startup and becoming like an established company. Uh, we just hired our first HR person and everything you guys have said, I, I, I can like really re resonates with me. Like um, recently we've had to give up a lot of freedom um, but we get a lot of stability back and that part's been amazing. Um, and, and, uh, like Mike said, like I'm a workaholic myself for better or for worse. And like I, for, for the startup for a while, I just lived it. Like that was, I ate, breathed and drank like everything about this job. 
And now that we're getting into point of stability, I'm finding um, I'm less responsibilities on my shoulders and I'm getting more of my free time back. And part of me is relieved that, you know, I, I have more time to myself. But part of me is now after hours finding myself, well, I need a purpose. I need something to do. I need more work. That purpose thing is the, at least in, in my own career, um, that purpose thing is the big divider between the big business and startups. And the, this might be a biased opinion because I've, I've, my startup life has been very like mission focused and mission focused organizations. But that's personally where I find myself is like, I'm happiest. Like I don't want to make some multi-billion dollar corporation, another multi-billion dollars. Um, I understand my job is to type on a keyboard and print money out the other end. But if there's a mission tied to it, um, I, I resonate with that much more closely. And I feel like at a startup, um, maybe it's drinking the Kool-Aid. I, I don't know. But at a startup, I feel like it's just, um, it, it's much more, um, it's not just like core values printed on a board that like everyone's like, ah, whatever. It like pe- people tend to at least early stage tend to like really live by those core values. And that's the driving factor um, for what people do. There's a lot of uh, feeling and like emotion in it tied to it when you're, when it's a small, really small company, exactly. like, everyone really buys in and fully believes in it. Well, even yeah, better. Real but, feeling. Go ahead. Uh, even better. You get to participate in making what that is. There's uh, the emotions and buying into it. But um, we recently went to an exercise um, uh, about a week or two ago where uh, the five of us basically got in a room and we're like, okay, what are our product principles? What are we like, what do we want to start? Def- like we're starting to see some traction, at least with our uh, uh, um, pitches. Uh, we started calling it positioning market fit and we're trying to find that product market fit. And we're starting to say, great. Now, if we're starting to do traction, we're starting to see growth. What do we stand for as a company? What is our focus? What do we consider our, you know, top priorities, uh, who are we? And it's really nice to be able to participate in setting those as opposed to walking in and going, well, I hope I'm aligned with the company mission because if I'm not, whoop, time to get another job. Yeah, in a, a large enterprise, all those sorts of values and those sorts of things are in, like they're dictated down, they're imposed upon you. Whereas in a, a startup, I mean, even if you're not in a founder or, you know, a managerial level position, even as an individual contributor, you can still have a large voice in a lot of those decisions um, and really um, like have a large impact on what the company is, is going to be. When, I, when I'm interviewing people uh, to join us at Moonrise, the way I describe it is, uh, if Moonrise is successful, every decision we make today will impact someone 60 or 100 years from now that you're never going to meet um, because the company has been successful and has grown and like we're long gone. And so just the, the level of impact you have at a startup, regardless of where you are in the org chart, um, is just... M- much more drastic than at, um, you know, a big biz, I think. And I personally enjoy that level of um, involvement in developing a company. 
Yeah, I will say that I, I do miss out on that. Working within a larger organization, things are... It, it's collaborative to an extent, but it, at the end of the day, it really is dictated from the top down. And then at least on our team, we're very collaborative with our, our goals and what we're trying to do. So that's nice. I still feel like I, I get a little bit of that. Uh, but yeah, not being able to just pop over to whoever's doing marketing and say, hey, like it would be cool if we tried something like this or going to the product team and saying, hey, I've been seeing a lot of stuff about this. Have we considered doing something like this? I don't really have the opportunity to do that and have those um, I, I guess sort of water cooler chats about work stuff as much anymore. Um, so I, yeah, I am missing out on that a little bit having moved into a more corporate role, but I guess the flip side of that is I also have work life balance to some degree. I mean, I work in DevRel, so that's farcical <laughs> in and of itself, but um, I, I have the option to work 40 hours a week if I want to versus, you know, at the start of working 80, 90, 100 hours a week. And that was not just an expectation, but you had to do that in order to just keep things afloat um, since you have to wear so many hats. Yeah. I mean, on the balance, I've kind of found there seems to be cycles to life too, right? Like I can do the startup 80 hour weeks for like a couple of years of time. And then I really need a break, probably six months. And then either, you can find a way to get people that break within the company or they have to go somewhere else for that. But um, yeah, I feel like that cycle is different for everyone. And I definitely am more on the workaholic side, but it's, uh, you know, it's hard to put that in consistently and stay productive. Yeah. I, I completely agree with Ben with the, the cycles. Uh, like when I did my introduction, like my jobs have been really small, high velocity company to more established a little slower pace, more work-life balance. And then I kind of recharge my batteries and then want to go at the startup pace again. And then I burn myself out. And every time I say, I learned my lesson, I won't do it again, but I always get, I always, always overdo it. And I, I'm aware of it, but I can't stop myself sometimes. And it's hard to say when you're with a, bun a bunch of people who are working just as hard to say, guys, I'm, I'm out or, or like, guys, I, I need to stop doing this. Like, it's really hard uh, to, to let people down or feel like, feeling like you are, whether I am or I'm not. We, uh, we had some early discussions uh, at Alto because all five of us, um, uh, we've all had a long history of all being workaholics and all both, <laughs> all not needing to do that anymore. I'm, I'm the youngest person on the team at 31 uh, and so like, you know, uh, one of us is a dad, another one is going to be a dad this month. And so we've actually been having lots of discussions about work-life balance and these kind of things and like trying to figure out how to thread the needle of we're a startup. We have no future if we don't get this thing done, but at the same time, we have no future if we kill ourselves trying to get that thing done and trying to find this blend of look you know, we're all remote, so we don't have to be in an office together. Um, we have to get these things done, but it doesn't have to get done. Not all of it has to get done right now. And it is more important that we're all at least healthy. So if we work a lot of hours, great. If we don't work a lot of hours, we have to support each other and saying, hey, listen, you've been on Slack responsive for about two days now. You need to leave for a little bit or, you know, hey, listen, like, it's fine. Go take 
a nap in the middle of the day and then come back on later and like really trying to figure out if we can thread that needle and not make those mistakes that we've all made in the past. Like I remember coming into one company and they're like, Oh yeah, we're in crunch time. We're, we're about to release our, you know, MVP for, you know, to a uh, version two to customers and like, Oh, it's crunch time. It's release time. And they're like, Oh, isn't this a lot of hours? And I remember looking at them going, yeah, this is the most sleep I've gotten in two and a half years. My last company was, <laughs> you have no idea. Yeah. I think, that really comes down to like company culture. And so like Amanda, I can, I can respect like DevRel, you're flying all over the place. Um, but I, I personally have not experienced um, that, that like, Oh my God, like crush yourself and kill yourself in a startup environment. Um, I mean, the, the startups I've been involved in have been, you know, Series C or spun out from um, Fortune 300, so a little more secure. And like, there aren't those in there aren't those situations that's like, hey, we have 30 days of runway, we got to get our shit together. Um, but I think anyone that is seeking the the startup like experience, um, they should not expect to like kill themselves in, in that environment. Um, I've, I've been in a number of organizations where it's, it's very simple and, and my organization now, um, you know, myself and my CTO, we, we work a lot because we choose to do so. But um, all of my engineers at 5, 6 p.m., like they're, they're gone. They're not on Slack. Um, Saturday and Sunday, they're not on Slack. And there's no expectation for them to be on Slack. And I really think it requires, um, like culture is a hard thing to cultivate. But if you do it from the beginning, um, then you can establish this environment where um, people aren't killing themselves, um, trying to accomplish goals. And an environment that does require like killing yourself to accomplish goals to me um, sounds like a failure of leadership and planning. Yeah, um, no, I, I totally agree with that. And that's been consistent at all the places I've worked at. Um, some of the companies where I, I felt the most stressed really didn't have that leadership at the top saying, hey, you need to be aware of work-life balance. And I think as workaholics, we're naturally drawn to the startups and the things that will have us working all the time. And it's really easy to, to fall into that trap. Um, and it's one of those scenarios where working at a startup is sort of the, the best thing for a workaholic and also the worst thing for a workaholic, because you can really overwork yourself because the work is always going to be there. It never ends. There's always something to do. You have to do so much of it. You know, um, I was doing like product marketing, I was doing documentation, I was doing API design, I was doing development stuff all at the same time. And there's all those things competing for your attention. Yeah, that, that's what I tell anyone that, that interviews is um, you really have to be aware of like you have to you have to have the sense of self-awareness of the, the time you're committing to, to whatever you're doing. Um, because you can kill yourself um, in this engagement, um, but there is no expectation from us for you to do that. But if you don't have the self-awareness to like cut yourself off, um, then I mean, a, a startup in general is not gonna tell you like, hey, stop working. 
Um, so it's up to you to say like, listen, I need to pump the brakes. Yeah. Um, and that's true for larger companies too. Sorry. Go ahead. No, I was just gonna say, it's definitely something that a good manager will help you with. And something I try to do as a manager is you had some people that are just, you know, just kind of workaholics by nature. I've had managers that really just push back on me. Like I see you're working overtime, you know, why like justify why you needed to do that. Uh, is there a way you could do that during hours and really just kind of give you that gut check of maybe that wasn't the best use of my time. Maybe if I would have waited till tomorrow, I would have solved it quicker and easier. Um, and it's something I've always appreciated. Even though I, I, I am inclined that way. It does help to have someone just telling you, you don't have to, you know, and I find it a lot with junior engineers that, you know, they have imposter syndrome, those sorts of things. And um, you really have to like, yo, chill out. You're, you're working at a level beyond what we're all expecting. <laughs> we, uh, uh, you, you brought up a good point um, about the, having that kind of like self-discipline and the self-awareness of knowing this, like, I've done that before as a manager for my reports, like, Hey, listen, like you don't need to do this. You don't like, why did you think that you needed to stay up late at night? Let's talk about cost benefit analysis. Uh, The downside is, is as you work for a small startup, you run into a situation where you're not going to have a manager. If you do have a manager, chances are that manager is very inexperienced and probably doesn't know better yet. And then number three, even if you do have a good manager, chances are that you're so understaffed as a startup that they really, it's a struggle for them to give you the time that you should be due as a report. So like one of those very important things, of especially the smaller the startup, is that self-discipline both to go, you know what? I'm just going to go to bed tonight because I haven't figured this out. I'm going to go to bed. I'm going to wake up. I'm going to have a cup of coffee and a breakfast. And then I'm going to get it figured out then. That self-discipline, as well as that self-discipline of being able to know, you know what? This situation is kind of screwed up right now. Like, I need to talk to the rest of the company and go, hey, listen, like, this is just a bad situation. And that self-awareness to understand the difference between, I don't know, and it's really tough, like, Juniors, junior engineers find themselves at startups a lot because startups are desperate for any help that they can get, but they just don't have enough experience under the belt. And they end up, they tend to get run through the ringer really hard uh, because of that. But yeah, it's such an important, like it's a, it's a con, but like it's one of those important skills that you have to have going in or at least know you need to have it. Yeah. You're completely right about, uh, about, um, like juniors running through the ringer. Um, I recently talked with uh, a friend of mine, you know, who was at the, my, my very first company with me. And I didn't, and looking back, like what, as a junior, when I started, I didn't know enough about it and didn't know enough to say no. And we were expected to work um, at the office at least 12 hours a day. And I had to, uh, an hour at least commute to work as well. So that was really hard on me. But I remember my thinking at the time and they expected it and thinking, oh, this is me. This is, I'm entry level. Like I have to pay my dues. This is me paying my dues. And like they, looking back, like I realized how really how much, how they took advantage of, uh, of young developers that way. I actually think having poor management is probably the number one risk in most startups. And so if you're thinking about like moving into the startup world, um, 
you should really like interview your manager. Um, I mean, in, 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 an interview is a two-way conversation. It's not just you trying to get the job. You're interviewing that company as well. And you need to make sure that that, that manager is, is going to be there and their job is to um, represent you in the best case for the company's goals. Um, and in a, in a startup environment, you're, you're all very much correct. I mean, there's so much like internal promotion of people that aren't qualified or haven't been trained to do um, like managing people um, and just ridiculous expectations. Um, and I, I honestly think, um, I think it was what, three PHP town halls ago where myself and Michael Lop did a, a long conversation about managing people. Um, management in a startup is probably like the number one problem that if that was solved, a lot of things would just go a lot smoother. I totally agree with that. And to be perfectly honest, management is the reason I left startups. Um, I, I think I noticed it more out in the, the Silicon Valley area where you have a lot of people who are under 30 and not to pick on people who are under 30, I'm actually under 30, but um, who just, they, they don't have the, the management experience, but they find themselves in now founder positions or C-level positions where they haven't really had to manage people before, but now they're not only responsible for managing a team of people, but managing a company full of people um, and the skills just aren't there. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess, I don't know if it's a consequence of being more experienced or getting older or whatever, but throughout my career, I, I guess I've learned a lot of the fires and emergencies that people have are self-created. Um, so a lot of the things that seem like a real fire or part of the culture of startup of, oh, we have to do this, we have to work this crazy, isn't actually the case if things are managed a little better. Um, so a lot of the emergencies are really self-inflicted. It, you would just kind of plan just a little more and just manage a little better. Yeah. I think the value of getting an early hire that has that management experience and not necessarily like a, a C-level executive, um, even just at the like principal architect engineering level is worth its weight in gold. And a lot of people aren't doing that. They're getting the younger people who are cheap and who are going to work 80 hours a week, no questions asked and not going after the, the more senior level people that I think they need in the early stages. I, uh, there's a, a phrase that I've been using a lot lately from some of my experiences. We got first time founder syndrome <laughs> is a phrase I've used to describe. Yeah, that's, that's a lot really of good, good phrase. Um, which is, it tends to be like, there's, there's, there's been a general rule of thumb that I've heard from a lot of friends that like, if you're going to go through and found, most likely the first thing you found is going to fail. And uh, part of that, in the context I heard that advice was basically a, like, if you've got like this one really good idea, but it isn't fully fleshed out yet, don't make that your first company, make something else, your first company, let that fail, get the experience, then go back to the idea you love unless you 100%. But more so than that, like I, it's, I've noticed it in a lot of like, yeah, it's that rapidly, like you've grown past uh, your expiration date. You've grown past where your skills are actually capable of keeping you upright and you fail to notice the fact that you're in that position, things start to crumble and you start to 
you don't realize what you don't know. So like what I've seen a lot of uh, first name founders who struggle is they forget that as much as it's a family and you've all built this on relationships, it's still a business. And the person who got you from zero to one in the marketing department is not the same person that's going to get you from one to 10. And it's not going to be the person that gets you from 10 to 100 and knowing when to go to that person and understanding deep down inside, you know, the most common I see is understanding deep down inside that the nicest thing you can do for your friend is to go to them and say, Hey, listen, this isn't working out. Here's a fat severance. Um, let's work on a really nice transition, but we're going to find somebody to like be your boss and or replace you if you don't want a boss. And it's like, it's that, and it's a bunch of other things that and it, and it, it keeps all circling back into self-awareness. Yeah. I've seen that a lot. And it's tough too. Cause I think particularly founders and, and the C-level execs at the early stages are very much in a position where, they should know that they're going to be hiring their replacement or their own boss at some point in time once the company gets to a certain stage. But I think a lot of people forget that. And then there's a lot of, I don't necessarily want to say ego. I think you you have to be a fearless leader while also being humble. And those things are constantly at odds with each other um, when you're working in a startup because you need people to trust you. You need your investors to trust you. You need the people working below you to trust you. At the same time, you need to be honest about the fact that you have no idea what the hell you're doing. Um, and I think that's a really tricky situation to navigate sometimes. Yeah, the big um, like gate points I've seen is 50 employees, 150 employees, and 300 employees um, are the most... Like those are really, really trying times in a startup. Um, everything's changing. Um, and I, I completely agree with you, Amanda. And it's actually like one of my management philosophies is um, my only job is to train someone to be my replacement. Um, and if I can do that, then great. And I, I think a lot of um, particularly early stage startups, you know, they this is my baby and like I want to be in control of it. Um, and um, they're un unwilling to let go. And I think at, you know, at a sub 15 person company, um, it's perfectly acceptable for this person to be in charge of a particular, you know, vertical or, or whatever. Um, but there comes a point in which like, you need to recognize that you are no longer capable of managing this beast that you have created. Um, and I, I agree with you. I, I don't, I don't want to say ego, but I can't think of a better word, but yes, like not everyone's designed to be a manager. <laughs> oh yeah, that's true. It's it's two different. There's like there's a skill set of I'm a really really good uh, uh, expert at doing this thing, and I'm really good at getting other people to do this thing. Those are two completely different skill sets. And so I have yeah, you, than yeah. right. So. Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off there, but I emphatically agreed with everything you were insinuating because yes. I'm a big people person and um, people are different than what you may have been doing. Mm -hmm. And there's a time. Yeah, and it's the thing where you can, you know, you can grow into that, but not everybody can grow into that. And not everyone wants to. It's something I talk to engineers about, like, let's say as an engineer, you want to go to a lead or you want to go to management. Do you want to do that because you actually 
think you'll enjoy the job or you want to do that because you think it's a pay or a career bump, right? And the same thing happens for, you know, do you want to be the CEO of the startup or do you want to be the CEO of the 50-person company or do you want to be the CEO of the 1,000-person company? Those are very different jobs with different demands on your, your time and skills. And yeah, you might be able to learn your way up through that, but do you want to? And not everyone does. A lot of people don't really. Yeah. Um, and I think a lot of startups make that mistake too, where they they take a really solid engineer and say, hey, you've been doing a great job. We're going to make you a team lead or we're going to make you a principal engineer and you're going to manage all these people. And uh, people see that as like a, a good career move or they see it as a pay increase or whatever, and they're on board with it. But then they're absolutely terrible at doing the management part. They're a fantastic engineer. They're great. They're dependable. But then you put them in a management role that they didn't necessarily want and things really tend to fall apart in that scenario. I've, uh, the thing I've noticed when that happens is, is I've seen that fail for a couple different reasons. Sometimes yeah, that exact scenario happened to me. A lot of times what happens is, is yeah, like, okay, we're going to give you the next step. We don't really, we don't really have a lot of other options. So we'll have you do this. Oftentimes I find what happens is a manager will get, you know, somebody will get promoted up to management and then the company, both the company and the person that's become the manager will completely forget that it's a completely different job and you need to start over. You're beginning your career again. There's, you, you have, I've had two careers. I've had developer and then manager, like two separate careers. And that transition requires training and support that some companies give and some companies don't. Um, ben, you're bringing up the questions that yes, or you know, reports. Do you want to be this? Do you want to do that? One thing I've also found myself asking is, is especially like um, engineers that are reaching that point in their career that like they've been senior for a little bit. It's time to start thinking about what the next steps are. Do you start specializing? Do you start going into management? And one question I've actually started asking, and one question. Um, that I've enjoyed is uh, somebody who's like, oh yeah, I don't like being a manager or like they're doing a manager um, and like their first round that they sucked at it, which is everybody their first time as a manager, they suck at it. The question I've enjoyed asking is, is do you not like it because you just don't like it? Or do you not like it because you're not good at it and you're not used to not being good at something? A nine out of 10 engineer, their first time as a manager will be a three out of 10 manager at best, maybe a four out of 10. Um, so yeah, final lob in on that topic, um, to throw another promo for episode 55, um, Michael Lop and I go pretty deep into like how to handle, um, that transition from engineer to manager. Um, lots of really good ideas in there. Um, go listen to episode 55. It's yeah, I, don't, I don't know if Mike is campaigning for co-host or for like marketing manager. Yeah. He's got it. Like, maybe you can do both. <laughs> yeah. Uh, somebody threw up in the chat. How, do, how does Mike know the episode numbers better than me and Amanda? It's uh, it's impressive. <laughs> maybe Mike could be our manager. That's what we need. Uh, all right. Uh, so Start on time. <laughs> that's a lot of work. I don't know that dedicated. What, what are y'all's thoughts on, um, you know, so we've talked about, you know, growing through a role or through a company, but when you're really early stage, you might not necessarily have one role. Maybe you're wearing a bunch of different hats, especially in your early stage startup, you come in and it's not like you can sit down and just focus on say, you know, back end API coding all day long. 
when you're in your first year of business. So most companies don't have that privilege unless you have a lot of funding or a lot of funding. Um, you might have to do back end, front end, CSS, all that. You might have to do all that plus, uh, you know, be in meetings with potential investors. You know, there's a lot of different hats you could possibly wear here. Um, what are your thoughts on that? So I think. Oh, go ahead. I I think what Ben said is nail on the head. Like you have to have to have a lot of different roles, and I've really enjoyed it myself because there's only so many people, and often your team is too small to have everyone have the skill set required for everything. So you have to pick up a lot along the way. And in my experience, it's been very sink or swim. Um, but like you and. I'll often fail, but then when you fail, it's a, it's a learning experience and then you get better at it. So I've developed so many skill sets from that mentality of like, okay, this needs to be done. We don't have someone who specializes in this. Someone figure it out. And I've abs- I've loved that. And I think it's made me a better employee or better developer. Like the, the skill set not, isn't necessarily even engineering related. But I've absolutely loved that about startups. Yeah, I totally agree with that. Um, I think uh, I sort of have a weird job anyway. So I do developer relations and I wasn't doing that at the time I was working at a startup. I was actually doing like technical writing and working with some API things. Um, But I think that's one of my favorite things about doing startups and even uh, now that I'm, I'm not in a startup anymore, I still find myself just with the developer relations stuff. I, I sit at this weird intersection of this crazy Venn diagram of like marketing, sometimes sales. I'm going to get hit for saying that, but it's true to some extent. Um, you got to do some pre-sale stuff. And then uh, like product management sorts of things. And then obviously the engineering side. Um, and I really enjoy wearing all of those hats. At the same time, I feel like it also has made me, I don't want to say weak in some areas, but I, there are definitely some areas where I'm stronger, some areas where I'm weaker. Um, and it hasn't really enabled me to focus on getting great at one specific thing. Um, and I noticed that a lot when I was working at the startups as well. Yeah. So, um, I, I, as discussed earlier, like I, I really enjoy like wearing multiple hats, but I wanted to approach this from a different perspective. Um, I've spent, I don't know, the last decade, like focusing on people, as engineers um and what i what i really like to do in these early seed stage um you know um environments is i i really like to um i encourage the the person to write their own job description and like you tell me like what do you want to do um because i can align that with the business goals and i can I can take that job description that you've written yourself and and fit it into our, our bigger vision as we're growing. Um, when we're thinking about like career progression and um, those sorts of things, I always like I, I, I bring in the engineers. There's never like a an, an imposed matrix of like this is what your career progression path is, and like you you need to follow the 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 golden brick road that I've laid out for you. Um, and so I, I think it's just a, like a, a discussion. Um, 
And I, I think the, the people on your team need to help like define like what that road is. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Talking about the Jack of all trades kind of thing. Um, the thing that I find uh, the most fun is there are times that I don't really feel like a Jack of all trades. Like, um, I'm a front end specialist, so I handle the front end thing. I'm also incredibly spoiled with Alto of the five of us. Three of us are engineers. Uh, all three of us also happen to be named Dan, which is uh, uh, fantastic for uh, Team Synergy when we all have the same name. Uh, it's going to be horrible to get some of the attention, though, right? Yeah. <laughs> we talked about that. Like, you can't just shout Dan or Daniel in a, in a room uh, whenever we're all together. Um, so I've been able to be focused a little bit and I enjoy being able to expand outwards. Um, I think the Jack of all trades comes in, um, being, uh, uh, such a small company, really having to think about the business in ways that the bigger the company gets, the more I don't have to worry about the business. I have to worry about, you know, what is, you know, what's going to happen when people fall off? What about the analytics? How are we going to handle what little customer support that we need to do right now? Um, how are we best positioned for uh, sales? What is really a good usage of our time? Um, you really turn in, I don't know, you basically just turn into a little mini product manager because that's really what product managers are is miniature CEOs within your company. And, uh, yeah, I, I, I've always enjoyed that. Like, it's one of those, like, I, you know, I like writing code, but I've been doing it for, you know, almost 20 years. And uh, I'm kind of a little tired of writing CRUD apps. Uh, so, I, I don't know. I have a lot of fun with the uh, 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 Jack of all trades and really thinking about the business side of things and really being able to have these discussions while spending the bulk of my time doing what it is my expertise. Yeah, I'm, I'm really the same way. I, um, I've dabbled in specializing, but I tend to get, Oh, kind of bored, I guess. I, I really do like jumping around between different tasks. Um, the one caveat I have, though, is I really hate jumping around different tasks in the middle of the same day, in the middle of the same block. So I really like to have like a, at least a two-hour block where I'm doing one thing. And if I, if I can't, it like drives me crazy, right? So like if I want to like code something, I really need at least two hours of like in an uninterrupted time. And then I can do something else the other two hours, and I do enjoy jumping around that way. Um, that's kind of my one caveat to it is I try to structure my day in kind of cycles. So like in the morning, I'm doing more administrative things. Uh, then after that, I have a code block. After that, I'm helping people and doing code reviews and doing meetings and things like that. Yeah, um, and that's directly related to why I do what I do now, because I don't have to work on the same thing day to day. Um, it's a nice way for me to keep that sort of chaos of having to do everything at once um, while also giving me a little bit more structure. So nothing is necessarily a crisis, uh, but I do get to work on a lot of things uh, because I want to, not necessarily because I have to, which is nice. Um, all right. So when do you make the decision or have any of you made the decision? Well, I guess Dan has. Dan and all the other Dans made the center decision. <laughs> How do you decide between maybe being an early hire at a startup versus a founder? Because um, at least from a, a high level perspective, being a founder might have a lot more social, you know, um, capital involved. It might sound a lot better 
but your optionality isn't all that different from an early hire. In fact, it might be worse than the fact that you might not get a salary or much of the salaries for five years, and then you get a generally the same kind of option package. Um, so what are your, what are your thoughts on that? Where do you lean? Is it a financial decision? Is it a passion decision? Is it somewhere in between for you? So for me and the decision calculus that went into it, um, my position is actually kind of interesting. Um, I'm actually a little bit of a hybrid of both. Um, Nick, the, I just call him the main founder, uh, had been iterating on ideas for six months before he found what he really thought was a good idea and started bringing everybody in. For me, a lot of the calculus has been um, really any job I take is uh, not usually about the money and is usually about what's going to be uh, good for my career and good for myself. Um, in this case, it was a um, it's a bunch of people that I know. There's an idea that just feels exciting um, and we join in. I think for me, showing up as I've showed up before, and I think for me, it's more of a uh, hindsight. I've showed up before as a very early employee. Um, it, it tends to be, I would not do that again unless it was either a, like an extraordinarily exciting idea and I just want to work on it regardless of how many people are there or I want to work with these people regardless. I think it's a really tough decision, yeah, because the founding is hard, especially if you've never done it before. Thankfully, Nick's done it before, so we, you know, follow his lead for most things, and we've all worked at small companies before, so we at least understand how it works. But that's 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 always a tough one. I think you just have to go into it with eyes wide open and the expectation of what's this actually going to do for me? Am I just going to get? Am I being given a chance because I'm an early employee? Is that what I need? Uh, am I getting to work with somebody? Am I getting to work on a great idea? Um, I think that kind of makes or breaks and be, having a realistic expectation. Where are you in life? I think the harder decision is, is do I become a founder? Like what is there to found? What am I actually going to participate in founding? And am I in a financial uh, position in my life to actually be able to take that leap? Whereas at least an early employee or a first employee, the, the financial question is not as difficult. And the question of what to found has already been answered. I think um, from my perspective, um, the the bigger thing here is when you're a founder or even an early employee is that nothing has been defined. Um, you literally have to make every single decision. Um, you don't even know if your startup is a good idea. Um, and so it, it's working in that framework, um, particularly for people coming from like enterprise, you know, level organizations, um, like you're, you're working in an environment where you don't know if you even have a good idea. Um, and you have to literally define everything. I'm talking about, do people get 401ks? Do people get dental and medical benefits how many vacation days do they get like there's all these sorts of decisions that have to be made beyond the aspect of your what you think your job is um how much you know how much rent can we afford for an office um there's like a, this whole other level of decisions that have to be made on top of what you think your job is um, that you really have to be like 
invested in and like, yes, I'm prepared to, to be the decision maker on those things. Yeah. Being, Oh, nope. Sorry, Chris, you go ahead. Oh, thanks. Um, my, my entire experience has been early employee. Um, my first startup, I was the first employee and my current one, I think my title is founding developer, but it's really early employee. Um, so if I can go back a little bit, um, many, many years ago, I came from a really small town and, um, I, I made very, very little money early in my career. And there were times I didn't know where my next meal was coming from. Um, and I carried that with me for a long time and that's not a concern anymore. And I've always taken stable jobs. Um, but now that I'm kind of experienced and I, I know my skill set, and if, if something didn't work out, I could, I know, I know I could find a job now and I'm very fortunate to have that ability. Um, but it, having only been in a fa- um, like early employee stage, I would love the opportunity and experience to be a founder, whether it works out or not. But like, if there's an opportunity that I believe in, I absolutely would love to go through it, like succeed or not. Um, like, I don't want to, I, I don't want to have a regret if an opportunity comes up and I'd love to experience it. I will say the the scariest thing about being a founder is you have X people's lives. Um, like you're responsible for them. Um, so if you have 15 employees, they have each one has two children, you know, on average, um, there are 30 people that like you are entirely responsible for their like food on their table, paying their rent, all of that. And if you're not willing to, and then you have to consider the business as well. So like you're, you're, it's, it's almost like a seesaw. And so like you're, you have to risk the business. Sometimes you have to risk the people sometimes. And it's, it's a very emotional roller roller coaster um, that you just, you really have to be prepared for it. That like, I am responsible for these people's well being. So how, how do you, how, how have you um, like ha- handled or prepared? I'm sure you can't prepare for that, but like, how have you coped with that, uh, that struggle? Uh, personally, um, I have not, I have not been in a situation where I like, I am in that position. I'm just aware of that position. Um, so I, I, I don't even think I could personally speculate <laughs> on like what it, <laughs> what it requires. Um, yeah. Yeah. So I would say uh, it's sobering um, for me personally. Uh, oh, that and also hiring, firing people are on similar levels for me because um, if you hire someone poorly, it means you're going to end up firing them. Hopefully. Right. Um, or if you fire someone, it has a very smart effect in that you're choosing for this person to no longer have a, a paycheck, um, and you don't know what their financial situation is. So you don't affect them um, in the same way with you know running a startup and managing a PL. If you mismanage that, uh, it can affect everyone suddenly. So for me, it's really just something I have to take seriously, um, and it's something where it makes me kind of overplan and over kind of budget and over estimate and project PLs and things like that. Cause I don't want to be in a place where uh, we couldn't 
cover it for some reason, if that can help that. I've been finding that dis- making decisions um, is the best and the worst part about everything. Um, you get to decide these things with these, uh, all these things like, you know, what do we stand for? What kind of perks are we going to do? How are we going to structure ourselves as a company? But those decisions have consequences. Like when we hire somebody, will we be able to keep them on? Like I've never, I've, I've been a part of hiring and I've been a part of firing. I've never been in charge of P and L and that kind of level of finances, but it's just, it's, there's a certain point to where you're just kind of like running this razor's edge of, I have to make a decision. I would prefer not to make a decision. I'd like to do some planning, but if I do too much planning around time and the decision is made for me and it's just, Sometimes it's really nice, and that's actually kind of what I enjoy is my from my break from sm- uh, smaller companies. I just enjoy being able to insert myself into a company where I really don't have to make that many decisions, and I can just go with the flow and do what's on the ticket board and only make a couple of smaller decisions. And the big ones, I can just farm off to somebody else. Like, oh, well, I didn't decide this. That was somebody else. Um, yeah, yeah, it's tricky too, um, right? Because it's that like... Uh, when I don't get to make those decisions, I, I feel very frustrated that I'm not like the master of my own destiny. Uh, but when you do, there's just like so much cognitive overhead that you don't even realize. Right. So like going back to like just closing five tickets a day, like that sounds amazing. Some days it's exhausting. Yeah. Yeah. For me, um, I've been in a situation where uh, I, I had a company right as the economy was starting to really turned to crap um, and had to make some some tough decisions about that. Uh, I was running a consultancy at the time and I had a bunch of contractors, so it wasn't it wasn't as dire. They had other things going on. They had other sources of income. But at the end of the day, um, we just didn't have the customers that we needed in order to, to really stay afloat. So I had to make a tough decision to basically end those contracts. And it really sucked. I mean, at at the end of the day, it's not my responsibility to make sure that they manage their finances in the event that something like that happens. But at the end, but at the same time, I also, it weighed really, really heavily on me. Um, And I'd say that it's one of those situations where I was grateful to be in the position to have some say in how that happened. So I was able to make sure that people didn't get completely screwed over. But at the same time, I honestly don't miss having that over my head either. Yeah, I don't blame you. So it's a whole lot of stress with sometimes very little reward. Uh, all right. So, yeah. So, as we're um, kind of going through this topic, uh, let's talk a little bit about uh, layoffs and hiring and firing people. Let's start with, I guess, the, uh, the happy side of that. Well, I mean, they're all very related. I mean, you can't talk about layoffs without talking about why you hired those people uh, in the beginning. But uh, yeah, so let's just take it all at once, I guess. I guess uh, I'll go first. Um, I have a a, um, a very authoritarian perspective on hiring. Um, and that is, um, if there is any doubt, uh, we will not hire that person. It has to be, you know, 100%. Yes, we're hiring that person. Um, it requires a lot of time and money to hire someone, but it requires a lot more time and money and liability um, to fire someone if they're not performing correctly. Um, when it comes to to firing, um, 
I guess it's kind of standard approach, but um, you know, I, I'm I'm a big fan of you know giving people as many chances as they can. Um, if you watched episode fifty five, marketing um, from the radical candor perspective, um, you know, I I'm very candid with everyone that works with me. Um, if you're not, you know, cutting it, then, you know, you're, you're going to, you're going to know it. I'm going to tell you exactly, um, you know, uh, I'm going to tell you exactly what you need to correct. Um, if we have to enter the phase of a, a PIP, a performance approval plan, we will, I'll do that. I have no problem doing that. Um, from, a I guess like a psychological perspective, since we were kind of talking about like budgets and that kind of stuff, layoffs are the hardest one for me where, um, in my experience, you know, um, the, the overall budget of an organization was not given to me upfront. Um, and so I, I was given circumstances in which it was like, Hey, you have 70 people on your team you only have 40 come April. So stack rank them and draw a line. And that that's really, really rough because you're, you're number 41, you're number 42. Like you're like, I really, really like these people. Um, but you just don't have a whole lot of context about like what's going on or like why this is happening. Um, and you're, you're basically layoffs are the worst because you're having to fire people that you really, really like, and they're, they're doing good work. It's just, you're having to fire them for a context beyond poor performance. Right. It's, it's nothing they could have done to control it. That, yeah. And that is the, I mean, in my 27, 28 years of experience, like those are the worst days when you're sitting there having to, having to fire someone not because of something they did, but because of something you or the organization did. And that is, that just sucks. I, I had to be there a much smaller size. And uh, that is the worst, not having any control over it, not having to talk about it early. I think my best experiences in small companies have been where the company is up front. Now, I joke a lot about I found I found out that I was the last employee, but it did not come as a surprise to me. There was a discussion. Hey, we're struggling. Hey, we're struggling. We're working on this, but we're struggling. Like there's possibly, you know, going to be bad things going to be happening. Like I've always enjoyed the times where it was obvious. But yeah, it the layoffs are the worst. Um, yeah, there's nothing you could have done. There's nothing they could have done. It's just literally um and and the worst part is is when it's a remote employee and you're trying to be subtle about can you make sure you're in a private place because this conversation is going to be awkward and then he's in the kitchen with his wife and she overhears and you deliver the bad news oh. ah. yeah i mean really all you can do in those situations is approach it with empathy and there are varying discussions and then schools of thought on empathy and in particular as it pertains to startups. But I think when it comes to hiring and firing, you absolutely need to have that empathy. I mean, this is someone's livelihood. And uh, at the end of the day, it, in some ways it is just business. It's again, it's not up to you to 
worry about someone else's finances and where their next meal is going to come from. But I think honestly, worrying about that, even though it's not something you can control, it's not your responsibility to worry about that really helps bring some humanity back to that whole process. Like it sucks. It's always going to suck to fire some people or to lay people off. But um, I've found that approaching it empathetically has gotten me a long way. I find, uh, and and yeah, getting on that topic, especially the thing that um, I'm finding interesting, especially now with this startup is that we're having some budget and we're trying to grow a little bit. So I'm, I've got some budget for about 20 hours a week of contracting and yada, yada, yada. And I'm finding that, especially the empathy on the more positive side on the hiring, what's really worked, at least for me, and I'm hoping is working for the people I'm talking to, is just kind of like radical candor to drop some business books. I'm I'm starting to get into the habit of reading all those airport business books now. But like, just like being really upfront and honest, like, hey, listen, like, you're an adult, you can make your own decision. But the only way you as an adult can make your own decision is you have as much of the information as possible. I'm going to be honest with you. This is what we've got. You know, this is about what we have in the bank. This is about what we're planning on. This is what our plans are. This is our worst case scenario. Like, make your plans. I want you to come on. And if the worst case scenario happens, ideally, I want you to go, oh, well, shit, I would have hoped that you wouldn't have had to do that. But you did tell me that this was a risk. And I, you know, whether I plan for it or not, I was told. So, yeah, it's uh, it's that being honest. And I'm trying to use that now as I'm talking to people. And I've done this before when I've been on the hiring side is like, listen, I got to be honest. This is the team. This is what I know. I'm new. So I don't know everything like these are this is I'm going to lay it all, all out on the table. Like, I want you to feel like I want you to feel like that you at least made the decision with your eyes open because it hurts less when bad things happen, when you at least knew that that could have happened or that you actively participated in making that decision rather than feeling like, fuck you, I thought I signed up and I did everything right. And like, you didn't tell me this was going to be a problem. If I know this is going to be a problem, I would have taken the other job offer I got. Yeah. um, And I actually feel pretty strongly about that. I don't think it should ever be a surprise if somebody is laid off or fired. I think that needs to be an ongoing conversation. If it's a performance related thing, um, I've worked at companies where it was just the CEO decided you weren't performing and you were done or you were put on a performance improvement plan without any warning whatsoever. Same with layoffs where the team didn't know that there was any problem. They were constantly being told, oh, things are going well. And the next thing you know, half the team is gone. Um, and I think that is a really, uh, honestly, a piss poor way to to manage any of that. <laughs> I don't think any of that should come as a surprise to people. Yeah, I completely agree. I think transparency in all aspects is the best thing. Because I, I think with what Amanda just said, if if that happens and like there's all of a sudden these, these layoffs or these fires that were that people didn't see coming, then those who are still there are going to live in fear for like, Oh, they were blindsided. What, what's going to happen to me? And I think that's going to create a really negative and fearful and bad culture. Whereas if, if you're transparent about it and I, I've, I haven't had the experience, um, uh, of like being around of firings or laying off. I, I think I've been really fortunate with that. Um, in my, in my entire history, I remember like one layoff. Um, and that was when the recession hit, uh, the owner took a like 10% pay cut. Everyone else took like a very small pay cut, like, and then they had to let one person off. Um, but I just remember how transparent the owner was with the entire company and how 
even though things weren't great at the time, we were all relieved and, and we knew that like he was in it with us and it was the best thing for everyone to, to help get through that. Yeah. The morale hit is actually a, a very important point. Um, I've gone through a number of them and when it, um, primarily affects a particular team. And so you have, you have one team that's just being like impacted by this. Um, I would rough estimate, I would say, um, in any layoff, you can expect the next three months. So the next quarter to be completely useless, wasted time, nothing will get done. So if you're going to do a layoff, just write off that entire quarter because nothing will get done. Yep. I've seen that um, company I worked at went through several rounds of layoffs as the company, the startup realized, oh, we don't actually have the product market fit that we thought justified our explosion into 200 employees. I, I got to see it drop from like, I was like the 190th employee <laughs> to see it drop down to 60 before they left. And yeah, it's after the layoffs, it's basically like the productivity goes out the window um, a lot of people, you also get the knock-on effect of a layoff. Like it's such a bad, like, it's such a worst case scenario. Cause usually what you end up having is you have the layoff and then you have a bunch of people that go, well, shit, I- I've had people knocking on my door and I've been turning them away. Cause I thought things were great over here, but now it's not great. So great. Now I'm gone. So your goal may be to lay off say 50 people, but by the end of three months after the layoff, you've really lost about 60 to 65 uh, as you have voluntary exits of people going, nope, I'm not going to risk a layoff. I'm just going to walk out you know, uh, um, now while I can and go to a more either a more stable situation or like, oh, this was the push that I needed to go start that widget making company out of my brother's garage or something. So. Yeah, I, w- I wanted to tack that on really quick. Um, in a very like insular community like Silicon Valley, um, all the recruiters at Facebook used to work at Google. They used to work at Yahoo. They used to work at Amazon. Um, and so when they catch wind that a layoff like this is happening, it's like blood in the water to sharks. And as any, I mean, as engineers listening to this know you get like three or four LinkedIn messages a day. Hey, come work for us. Um, if they recognize that your company is having, having a layoff, um, that goes up to 10 or 15 offers a day. And then it's, 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 it's an open wound and you can expect to lose a lot more people, um, post layoff than you expected to through like voluntary, you know, exits. I, I'm not going to lie. Um, I've actually effectively been that person of like, I pull open the news. I'm like, Oh crap, that company just did a round of layoffs. They're actually in my building. It's time to go canvas the elevator and start sending emails out to the people that we find out that are laid off. Like it, it feels crass, but at the same time, like it, the job market, like, we are talking earlier, technically the segment was both hiring and firing, but we obviously all have issues that we need to work through. Um, but like on the hiring, like it's such a tight market that you will take literally every advantage you can. And sometimes like, hey, there's a layoff. Great. I'm going to start like I'm going to start hitting them up like they're obviously looking and they didn't know they were going to look. So I'm going to strike while the iron's hot. Oh, yeah. Um, having worked on an HR team, uh, I did a, a stint for about a year and 
that was a large part of our strategy. It's like, oh, IBM and HP are laying people off. Let's go hire all of their engineers that fit the certain profile. Like, let's specifically target them. Um, and that is absolutely a huge part of recruiting strategies. All right. So um, we're like way over time at this point. So I think we're going to try to wrap this up, but we are going to do, I think it's the first for the town hall. And we're going to have a part two of this episode because we have, we still have like a ton of topics to cover. And I think we have a really good conversation going. So we don't want to just drop it off and only cover part of this. Um, we don't have the date scheduled for that yet. It will probably be in three weeks or so, but we will tweet it out as soon as we do. Um, so I want to thank everyone for joining us tonight. And we will definitely see you all again in a few weeks.